0: And we, we want to teach this this evening on the, the idea of no other gospel, no other gospel, and we want to look at the first six verses. Here we are. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren of which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Again, Lord, it's our privilege to be able to break the bread of life. And for a few moments, as we look into this, we just ask you to help me to speak clearly. Give us all ears to hear. We pray for those that may yet be on their way, for those that are absent, traveling, wherever they may be, Lord, bring them back safely the next time we gather. But in this lesson, God, speak to us about the power and the beauty of this wonderful gospel that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The book of Galatians is a very small gem in the New Testament, consisting of about six chapters, but it teaches a lot about justification by faith. There are a lot of central truths that are in this that I think are necessary for the Christian life, and so it will be quite the... The journey as we go through this and learn about how to apply so much of this to everyday living. Galatia is located in what we know today as modern day Turkey. And if you have ever seen that on the map, then you know that north of Turkey, they have the Bosphorus Sea. And then just on the other side of that, there's Russia. And then south of Turkey, there's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I've been in that area many times, lived there for 16 months. But last time I was there, Tiffany and I went, I had to go and preach in Ankara. The, that's the capital of Turkey, which itself is part of the region called Galatia. And we took a tour and did the underground churches. We ministered in an evangelical church there in Ankara and traveled with some friends and really had a wonderful, wonderful time. And, of course, whenever you go on trips like that, you tend to want to pull out one of Paul's epistles and read it. Just like if you were to go to Philippi or Ephesus, you want to sit there and read the scripture that was written to the people that resided there. Well, this region of Galatia was it was, began somewhere around, uh, 25 BC. Augustus had put a colony there. There were people there before then, of course, but as far as its, its condition by the time Paul came along, there were a lot of different nationalities that were there. There was a uh, diversity that was there, but they also worshiped a lot of different kinds of gods and were involved with different cults. You read that in the book of Acts. You can see when Paul went into that area, The people spoke a different language. They fell down and started worshiping Paul and Barnabas as though they were gods. But Paul started a church there, likely on his second missionary journey, and his typical plan was to go into the synagogue. He witnessed to the people. They accepted Christ or rejected the message. Whoever did accept it very often followed him into what later became a a a group of people who were called out and they had their own particular kind of church meeting in houses many times. So somewhere through the years, Paul, thinking about these believers, he sat down and he penned this epistle here. In order for you to get the best or the most out of an epistle like this or any of the writings in the New Testament that are letters, it's for you to understand that even though it was written to the folks in Galatia, it's still applicable to you here. So it's almost like to the folks that are in Nebraska and Thayer County. There are different cultures, different ideas, but the gospel of the kingdom is the same in every age. That's the power of the gospel. It's timeless. It's ageless. It doesn't change because you have a new group of people. People have to conform their lives to the gospel. The gospel does not have to conform itself to what people believe in that present age. So in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, we have the name Paul. Paul's name, as you know from the book of Acts, was originally Saul. He was a Pharisee, certainly a Jewish man. But he was unhappy that the Christians were multiplying and telling the story that Jesus had been crucified for the sins of people and that he was raised from the dead. And Saul began to persecute the Christians to the point that he had power from the chief priests to go into different districts, apprehend them, put them in jail. Well, This man became a Christian as the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus and eventually his name became that of Paul. The reason he designates or describes himself as an apostle is because an apostle was a title that was specifically given to people who walked with Christ and were specially chosen. Luke chapter 6 tells us Jesus called all of his disciples together, and of those disciples he chose 12, and those 12 he, he named them apostles. It's a Greek word that means somebody that sent. The equivalent to the word apostle in Latin, would we would have the word missionary, and that's how it comes over into English. So a person who's appointed and sent out by God to do a particular work, commissioned by God to be an emissary be somewhat of an ambassador except they in 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 these days certainly had uh, a power and authority in Christ because second Corinthians 12 and 12 says surely the signs of an apostle have been wrought among you in all miracles signs and wonders but in the new testament you have no less than 21 different people who are called apostles See, we're talking about individuals outside of the twelve. Paul and Silas and them. You can read in Thessalonians where it talks about, uh, we being apostles of Christ. So somebody that's sent is a, is a person who is an apostle if in fact they've been sent out by the king. And the emphasis here in verse one is we're apostles, not of men, neither by man. So he's saying that that the title that I am holding to the ministry that I have is based not on a human conferment, But I had a vision of the Lord and he came to me and he's the one that appointed me to the work that I'm doing. You probably are not aware. Some of you will be. But in the last. Probably last 50 years of the church here in America, you have had more and more people teaching on apostles and prophets to the point that there are a number of men and women running around America who hold this title because group of individuals laid hands on them and said to them, you are now to be called apostle so and so or something of that that nature. I'm not talking about that. A person in scripture who's an apostle of God is someone that had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were appointed to go and do this. And the Lord confirmed their ministry. Now, all of the 12 apostles did not write epistles. Silas did not, or should say all of the apostles didn't write epistles Uh, of the 12 who walked with Christ. We don't have letters from all of them in the canon of scripture of the other individuals who hold The name of apostles. We don't have everything recorded from them or anything recorded from some of them. But what I'm wanting to emphasize is that a person who is an apostle of the Lord, they are going to have the hand of God upon them. And people will know it's that kind of ministry. This is what Paul is saying here. Not of men, neither by man. So we're not going to vote on this. He's saying won't be anything like that. But he said it's by Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, it talks about various gifts and ministries. So again, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Jesus, he operated and moved in all five of those. Hebrews calls Jesus the apostle of our profession. In the Gospels, it talks about Jesus saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. He was an evangelist, someone that spread the good news, traveled and shared the good news because he said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of Israel. And then he went from village to village. We know he was a pastor. He said, I'm the good shepherd. He certainly was a teacher. Nicodemus came to him in John chapter three and said of him, we know that you're a teacher come from God. So it is only Jesus who is able to appoint people to specific roles that were designed to be an extension of his ministry in the body of Christ, in touching people and ministering to people. In fact, the truth of the matter is you can't give something you don't possess. Jesus possessed all of these ministries, so he sh- he could certainly appoint individuals to this ministry and to that ministry. But then he shows the connection here of jesus being the messiah we have the word there in english christ that is the equivalent to the hebrew word for messiah what and who was a messiah figure the jewish people had long awaited someone who would come and rescue them from the yoke of their oppressors going all the way back to genesis it was prophesied over and over again That there would come someone who would be special. So in Genesis, it talks about somebody who would be connected with the tribe of Judah. Moses talked about a prophet coming after him, and he said, him you will listen to. Told David that your seed is going to sit upon the throne forever and ever. So we have one, we have a, a number of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of, of someone who's to come. And Micah prophesied, about how this powerful scepter would come out of Bethlehem, Judah. So the birth of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures. And we know that they were believing for that because Herod called for all of his prophecy teachers and said, tell me where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And they stretched out all their charts and talked about it. And they said, well, it seemed like it's supposed to be Bethlehem. And Herod said, "Well, if it seems like it's supposed to be Bethlehem, there's going to be a whole lot of babies, a lot of babies in trouble, because I'm going to find the Messiah. And if and if he's here, he's going to die." And that's when Herod went and took care of all the two-year-olds in a particular region and killed them. So the 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 name Christ, or I should say, the name Jesus, is the name given by the angel. To marry him, to let him know that he would be a savior, Christ is a title. It's a title. So so We we don't want you to think Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name. So it's not like Daryl Sutton, okay? Christ is a title. But then the connection with God the Father means that Jesus is connected to, linked with, and a part of the Godhead. So we say God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, the triune God here, Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. This will become clear even when we get to verse three. So Paul testifies in verse one of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is a non-negotiable teaching in the scripture. We could go to first Corinthians 15, but I'll quote it all for you. Paul says, if we do not have Jesus raised from the dead. He said, we are of all human people miserable. And he said, our faith is in vain if he wasn't raised from the dead. That is to say, what's the point of all of this if Jesus didn't come back from the grave? See, So to believe in the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. If a man or woman says to me, I do not believe Jesus was raised from the dead, I cannot accept that that man or woman is a Christian because Paul said our faith is in vain. I had an experience one time in the underground church in Saudi Arabia and there was a gentleman who was the coach at one of the American schools there and so we had some Bible studies in the home and this was every week and this he was one of these guys that was not teachable, uh, very argumentative, and it, whatever subject was going on, he just wanted to debate it, and he wanted to start an argument with anyone that was teaching a, uh, a Bible study. So it happened to be one day when I was leading the, the discussion dealing with the, the resurrection, and he made this statement to me. And he said, well, I accepted Jesus, and I believed in him, Without accepting the resurrection as a reality. And so we're, we're in a small group, you know, 12 or so people, maybe a few more. And I said to him, well, I said, you need to be born again. And I said, if you become a Christian, then you, you'll, 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 you'll be on the, on the right track. And so he got angry and steam was just about coming out of his ears. <laughs> and, and he, he was so mad at me. He he invited me outside because he he wanted to fight. Now, I was 21 years of age, and I was a young Marine, and I wasn't quite as sanctified then as I am now. And so I I told him, I said, look, I said, I'm not going to go outside with you, but I said, I guarantee it's not because... I'm, I'm afraid of you, but I don't want to go out there and cause no international scandal or something like that. But I said, even if we were to go out there and, and get into a tussle when it's all over, you're still an unbeliever. See? Fighting with me is not going to change your condition. If you deny that Jesus was raised from the dead. Scripture makes it very plain. Our faith is in vain. You consider how many people there are today in churches across America who will tell you that the resurrection is a farce or it's a legend. They don't believe it. I've met preachers like that. I've certainly met many Christians or people who call themselves Christians in churches who will tell you that they deny what Paul teaches so explicitly. So in verse number two, then he says to all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Paul had a team that traveled with him. Paul had a number of believers that were assembled around him. I think everybody wanted to hang out with him. When Paul came into a village, I think people wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to hear about what God was doing. They wanted to, to hear the sermon. They wanted to be in touch with him. That's powerful. And if if we have a good witness, I think people want to spend time with us. You know, you shouldn't be the kind of Christian that nobody wants to be around. You should be the kind of people want to spend a little time with. So the, the brethren here, he says that are with him in all of these churches. We don't know how many churches there were in Galatia, but there obviously was more than one because it's in the plural. He was involved with starting fellowships. Those fellowships were involved with starting other fellowships. Now, they did not have big, beautiful buildings like we have today. These people were meeting at homes or in fields. So this leads me to ask another question. How beautiful a building do you need to have in order for you to feel like you're in church or in order for you to feel like you are part of the church? The scripture says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The scripture says we two or three gathered together. You are right. Jesus is right there in the midst. And, and, and I think there are people in Vietnam today and Burma today, other places they meet in rice fields. They meet under trees. And they consider what they do to be church. Millions of people in China and other places secretly meet in homes just to have a relationship with other Christians. We are so fortunate that we can get in a car, drive anywhere we want, go to church any day of the week. We can go visit somebody, talk about the king. But there are places in this world where they would love to be able to walk into a building that actually has a steeple or a or, or cross on the outside of it. What a blessing. And in some cities, you have churches right across the street from each other. So here you have First Baptist on the corner. Walk across the street. Second Baptist on the corner. On the other side, Third Baptist on the corner. You know, go walk to another side. You have Faith Lutheran. Walk to the other side of the road, Peace Lutheran. Walk to the other side. Grace Lutheran. Then you have first church of the Nazarene, then second church of the Nazarene, all all of this. You can have anywhere you want in America. But when you go to other places, sometimes you find one church for every 200 miles or so. So I can't help but think of how far these people had to travel if they wanted to fellowship. And how many times these letters had to be hand copied in order to pass them around and circulate them in the churches, hoping that you've got some people in the congregations that are literate and can read it to the people. Paul knew what he was doing. So in verse three, he says, grace and peace be to you from God, the father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, two very important Words. Grace and peace. Say those two words with me. Grace and peace. Now, grace has a number of different ways to define it in scripture. We can say grace is unmerited favor, and that's true. We don't deserve it. You cannot earn it. You cannot produce enough good deeds to merit it on your own. God lavishes it upon us because of His Son. My pastor used to describe grace as uh, love gifts, things that God does just because he loves you. Same way sometimes parents will go out of their way to do something for their kid, not because their kid did anything, just because they just want to let the kid know I love you, that kind of a thing, love gifts. But Paul also describes grace in 1 Corinthians 15 as a as a transforming power because he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. So grace changes you. Let's never forget whenever we sing that old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved. See, there's the change. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found blind. see. So there's transformation. But it's possible for a person to sing Amazing Grace and there's nothing amazing about it because their life hadn't been changed. And there are sinners who sing Amazing Grace every time there's a funeral or a wedding or a church service. But grace is truly grace if, in fact, it changes how we live. And if it doesn't do that, then what's the point of it all? Because you you can't you can't lay hands on somebody and confer grace upon them just because they say they own a Bible. God gives grace on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ. So then we have this next word, peace, which we all need, because peace is something so many people in this world lack. Scripture says, "Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on Thee." So, when I was in sin, there was hostility, enmity between me and God. There was a gulf between us, and that gulf was was uh, comprised of sin. Now, I was at war with God, even if I didn't think I was at war with God. Somebody would have told me when I was a sinner. That, that God was my enemy, I would say, how in the world can he be my enemy? I don't know him. That's probably what I would say. I don't know who God is. Well, I'm not doing anything to bother him. But God takes the sinner's rebellion and stubbornness and independency as as hostile actions toward him because it's a person who refuses to submit. And once an individual hears the gospel, surrenders their heart, then all of a sudden the peace treaty Goes into effect through the blood of Jesus. So now I have peace with God. See, He's not mad at me. Whereas he was displeased with me. I was a child of wrath. Uh, John 3, 16, 17 and 18 says that I was condemned because of my sin. Now I have peace with God. And it's a whole lot easier to live with somebody if you're at peace with them. Mm-hmm. A husband and wife get into a fight. You can walk into that house and the tension is thick. You could take a knife and cut it because you can tell that nobody in here talking to each other. The only reason people talking in here now is because you've come over or I've come over. That's the only reason people are talking. But as soon as you walk out, it goes quiet again. So so peace is a wonderful thing. So we have peace with God. Well, then the scripture makes it very plain. That that we receive in Philippians, the peace of God. So it becomes something in here. And when everybody else is having trouble in life and the storms are tossing them to and fro, just like Jesus, you're able to lay down and go to sleep. Yeah. There are a lot of people who don't sleep good at night. They toss, they turn, they got a lot on their mind, they're, they're burdened by work by family, by community, by lack, by abundance, whatever they're burdened with. But but there are a lot of people who don't have peace with what they're doing. And the only way to, to receive this peace, of course, is to become a Christian. But now that I'm a Christian, then there are things I have to do to make sure this peace is at work in my heart and in my life. And one of the things Paul says you have to do is think on things that are of a good report, lovely, things that are holy. So the, the, the piece that you have on the inside very often is connected with what you're thinking about. Consider this. Your emotions are directly connected to your thinking life and your thoughts. If you don't believe me, sit there and think about somebody you don't like. Yeah. And and you, you watch you, you. If you had a nurse or somebody could take your blood pressure when you started thinking about somebody you didn't like. Immediately, they would know there's something wrong. This is why Paul said, think on things that are pure, things that are just. Now, verse three, then again, connects God, the father, and then talks about the lordship of Jesus Christ. The word Lord implies he's master. I want to spend a few moments on this. In other letters, Paul calls himself a bond servant, slave an indentured employee of Jesus Christ. The Lord, in ancient times, if it was a Roman situation, for the most part owned the employee, certain certain vocations. That means that the freedom to go, the freedom to do, the freedom to say was... Bounded only by the rules of the master or the Lord. And the way we apply that to ourselves is the scripture says of us, Jesus died on the cross. We're bought with a price. You are not your own. I do not belong to to me. You do not belong to you. We belong to the Lord. So you don't have the right to just do whatever you want to do. You have to seek the will of God. You have to pray. You have to ask God about this. You have to pray about that. When you're considering moving here or going there, you've got to think about God's will for your life, for your family. Don't ever forget the story of Lot. When Lot separated from his uncle Abraham, he made his way towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Very wicked place. But he he never gave any thought to the fact that when he got to Sodom and Gomorrah, he'd be in a immoral place in that his daughters would marry two men of the city. And that later on, he would end up in a predicament where the men of the city would want to come to his his uh, home and rape the angels that had come into the city because the angels came like men. I'm trying to get at something with this. And what I'm trying to get at is when it's all over, according to the Gospel of Luke, the scripture says, remember Lot's wife. Three words. And I preach those three words plenty of times. You can get a wonderful message out of that. Lot and his wife were told by the angels, escape to the mountain for your life. You can be saved. They took off running, but he said, "Whatever you do, don't look back. Don't look back. You're gonna, you're gonna hear all kinds of sounds and stuff blowing up and explosions, and you're gonna smell sulfur, and there's gonna be all kinds of smoke and stuff in the skies. But whatever you do, don't look back." So they're, they're going out of town. They keep going, keep going, keep going, and and finally, Mr. um, Mr. Lot realizes that even though he still got his two daughters with him. The sound of one set of footsteps are missing. Because his wife had turned and looked back and the scripture says she became a pillar of salt. So they escaped to the mountain and then they looked back down into the valley and saw everything was on fire. But but here's the thing. When when Lot was with Abraham, he had blessing. God was with him. God helped his family. He was wealthy. He was enriched. He made one decision and moved to the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah and he lost two sons-in-laws, two daughters, ended up losing his wife and ended up on a mountain in incest with two daughters. So here's the point. When you're making decisions, seek God's will. Because sometimes the decisions you make can not only lead to trouble for you, but also for the people in your family. That's very important. When we say that Jesus is Lord... We're saying, God, you control every aspect of our life. You control our heart, mind, soul, strength, pocketbook, wallet, clothing, my speech, everything. So as a Christian, you, you can't just, or I should say, you shouldn't just give everybody a piece of your mind. Just because you're in the mood to go off on somebody. You ever had somebody on your job, did something you didn't like and you just, you just really wanted to just, Just let loose. see. And the reason you didn't let loose, if if you're a Christian, might have been because you you felt like God was constraining you. Now, in other circumstances, you might have. You might have gone off the deep end and said a bunch of things that the next day would have led you to have to go back and apologize for. That shows you a Christian, too, because you acknowledge what you did is wrong. God still controls your behavior because now he sends you back to the person that you said something to in the wrong way. And what you said may not have been wrong, but you might have said it in the wrong way. That's to say Jesus is Lord. When he governs our life, he controls our actions. And that's so important. Too many people want to be Christian Without letting Jesus be Lord. 30 years ago there was all this controversy. In the. uh In many churches. In particular one seminary down in Dallas. And it was called the Lordship Controversy. So you had all these people that were. Giving their hearts to. Jesus Christ supposedly. But they were then saying. I became a Christian. But I wasn't obedient to God. So I, I accepted Jesus as my Savior but not as my Lord. We had a lot of that going on. People were writing books on that. And I, I thought the whole thing was interesting. John MacArthur wrote a, wrote a book one time called The Gospel According to Jesus Christ, which was attacking that whole thing. But you, you wouldn't even have needed to read his book if you just, somebody just read the Bible. H- how can you separate the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's Lord. He's Savior. Okay. He's Redeemer. He, he's all of these things, so it's impossible for you to say I accepted one part of him but didn't receive the rest of him. Told you before, my name is Daryl Sutton. If I come knock on your door, and and it would be odd if you said to me, "Okay, come in, Daryl, but stay out, Sutton." Impossible. See, how does a person accept the the savior work of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ, but deny His lordship? I'm telling that kind of a person. Probably never really surrendered their heart to the Lord anyhow. They probably started going to church, but they probably never really accepted the king the way they should. So when we come to verse four, it gives us this description of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And I think this is marvelous. Who gave himself for our sins. He sacrificed himself on the cross on our Behalf. Paul believed in, as you can see in this sentence, the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Substitutionary in the sense he got up on the cross as our substitute. He fulfilled the obligations to the law that we had been unable to fulfill. He received the punishment in his body that was justly due to each one of us. He sacrificed himself voluntarily he did he's the only person who came into this world ever that was born to die the father gave the son the son gave himself for our sins who else has ever died for you There could be a lot of people lay their life down for somebody because they're trying to protect a spouse a kid but nobody ever died for your sins nobody the the story of mister Abraham Lincoln I, I enjoy. Of course you know he was assassinated at that theater place wherever he was up there in the balcony, but when they when they were taking his body home, they're carrying him through all of these little small towns, and in one of these small towns a whole lot of people gathered along the roadside and there was a a black lady who Who hoisted up her little child on her shoulders so she could get a glimpse of the casket as it was being pulled in the wagon as it was going down those dirt roads during that time. And as the, as the thing was going by, she, she could be heard saying to her child on her shoulder, take a good look, honey. He died for you. See? He did, but he didn't die for the child's sins. See? That's the difference. Paul says that For a righteous man, it's not hard to find somebody who will die. But for an unrighteous man, hard to find somebody who will lay down their life for him. If there's somebody in this community who's a good citizen, or somebody in your family that you care a lot about, and they've gone out of their way to do things to help you, you probably take a bullet for them or lay your life down. But if you've got somebody in your family that's the black sheep, or the scoundrel, or the lazy one, the slacker, the one that's always looking for a handout and doesn't want to help anybody, that is typically the one you're not going to volunteer to die for. But you know what Jesus did? He died for both. See? Who gave himself for our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities, our wickedness. The only thing that separates us from God is sin. You're not separated from God by feet and inches we separated from God only by sin. Adam and Eve tried to run from God, hid in the trees. God found exactly where they were, came to them and said, where are you? And then they realized that the bushes weren't separating them from God. Sin. And this is why people do not want to be in the presence of believers many times, because if they if they if they know they're in sin and living far below, the knowledge that they were raised with concerning the kingdom of God, then they instantly go into conviction when you come around. Instantly. They start feeling condemned. They start feeling guilty. They start feeling unclean. And the moment you start talking about anything, then they want to lash out at you and get angry at you. And it's all because of the issue of sin. It's a weight that's too big for anybody to carry. So this is why Paul tells us in verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Well, if he, he did that, if he bore our sins, if he carried our sins, why do we want to bear them and carry them ourselves every day? It's almost like we like to create new ones every day. Well, none of us are perfect. We know that. But the first sentence gives the description of what he accomplished. The second sentence gives us the The consequences of that deed, it says that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Now, who would have ever thought you would need deliverance from the present world and who would have ever described the present world as evil? That's what he did. The last uh, verse of first John tells us this world we live in is evil. So that's a that's a, a, a pretty apt description if we start talking today about what's going on, not just around the world, but in our own nation, I think you would probably say this is an evil place. Yeah. Uh Paul talks about things that are done in the dark that should not be spoken of. Mm-hmm. There was somebody in Southern California here not too long ago to intentionally set a fire. So thousands of acres have burned. A lot of people have lost their homes and stuff like that. That's evil. That's bad. I sat with someone just the other night, born and raised in Germany, and I, and she was talking to me about, we were talking about the city of Berlin. And she was, she was saying, uh, she was talking to me about his connection with Hitler. And I said, I'm curious. I said, can you find anybody today in Germany that will even say anything positive about Hitler? she said well when i was a little girl she said a lot of the older people of course they still defended him but said you you can't find a whole lot of people today that will say anything positive about hitler i mean it's like going down to arkansas clinton won the pre- the uh, governorship down there twice but i mean you can't find anybody to vote for him and i've asked but can't find anybody so and I'm not trying to equate him with Hitler or nothing like that. I don't misunderstand me. I'm just I'm just trying to say that people people have a tendency to to uh, to not want to associate themselves with with something. So when we talk about evil, everybody has their own ideas about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's wicked, what's evil. But you have to look in the scripture in order to find a description of what is evil. Because scripture doesn't have to agree with us. We have to agree <laughs> with, with scripture. So what, what would be things that are evil? Murder, of course, evil. For, for Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Idi Amin, people like that. For them to walk this earth was for the devil to walk this earth wearing pants. The things that they did. If you have any idea or understanding about their life, then you know that would have to be Evil. When Paul describes the deliverance of us from this present evil world, he's thinking of an ancient time when when Christians are not beloved by the Roman government. I mean, they haven't really spread out and become that that uh that, that famous just yet. If in fact Galatians is one of the earliest epistles that Paul Paul has written, but even if it was written in the mid 50s of the 1st century, Christians still were treated like they were sort of a a sect of Judaism. So the Jewish people denounced them because they accepted Christ as a Messiah and the Jews didn't. The Romans denounced them because the Christians accepted a man who was crucified under Roman authority as a Savior and Messiah and because they only acknowledged one God when the Roman religion had multitudes of gods. And the Roman religion basically carried the idea that If we conquer you, your gods become subject to our gods. You can worship your gods so long as you know that our gods are bigger. So you have to burn incense to our gods while you're burning incense to your gods. And of course, the Christians didn't hold to that. In Paul's mind, this present evil world was wrong because the course of the world, the present system was contrary to the principles of the kingdom of God. Let me, let me give you some more description of ancient Rome. If you've ever read classical literature, then you know <clears throat> that um, lesbianism, homosexuality, and all of that was acceptable in certain classes of society. You don't have to read the read Paul's letter to the Romans in the first chapter and see he was in disagreement with that. In uh, ancient times, many infants died of exposure. The father was the patriarch of the family. If he did not want a daughter, he could give a command and they had to take the daughter outside the city and the child would be left on the trash heap to die of exposure. You know, as well as I do, that God is very interested in looking out for the orphans. Taking care of the infants, the early church fathers, when you read their writings, they condemned the death of children by exposure and infanticide they were not into people taking the lives of infants paul said this present evil world so those are just a few things you consider the the, the present age And things really don't change because sin goes from one generation to the next generation. That's why certain sins continue to perpetuate themselves one generation after another. As long as there have been people on this earth since Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, there's been murder. There's been stealing. There's been lying. And people have gone out of their way to create every kind of law you could think of to prohibit certain kinds of behavior, but the behavior still goes on behind closed doors. And then even when you loose the behavior and legalize, you don't, you don't stop it. You just let it multiply even more. Yeah. You take all the restrictions off. In, in Germany, where they're, they're now debating whether or not to strike down the incest laws. It starts in Europe, it comes across the Atlantic to Canada, and then it floats downstream to us. It's coming here, folks, it's coming here. Polygamy, it's in the Middle East and on the continent of Africa. It's now acceptable in parts of Europe, has been received in Canada, so that they're now given... Uh, government aid to an individual who may have more than one wife. And I'm promising you it's coming down here. They're going to talk about it here because of the southern states of America are already prepared for it because of the kinds of people they have in certain religions down there. The debate's going to start. This is why Paul said in verse four, Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins to deliver us from this present evil world. Why do Christians need deliverance? It's not that we need a rescue from every bad thing that they're doing. We know what's going on is wrong. It's just that we need deliverance from the mentality and the ideas that can invade our minds and cause us to believe that. And these are the things that produce all the, uh, the, the arguments and the hostility. So the Christian mind has to be conformed to the word of God. I wasn't going to go to this verse, but I'll go there now. Let's go to Romans 12. Just go back a few a few books. Romans 12, you need to at least see this. In light of everything that I've said, it'll make a whole lot of sense. Romans 12, look at verse number 1. We've already talked about the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Here's our sacrifice. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Notice the adjectives that describe this sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That is to say, you can offer a sacrifice that is not holy and that is not acceptable to God. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You have to work daily. You can go back to Galatians 1. You have to work daily to change your thinking, to conform it to scripture. Otherwise, you'll march in step with the world. Now, we have to live in this world. Okay? And, and, and in this society, we, we, the, the people in the court system and all that kind of stuff, look, they're making decisions on the basis of how they understand the Constitution and, and, and uh, state legislatures and Congress and all of that. But, but as Christians, we are not politicians. We're not politicians. Unless you happen to be a Christian who's involved with politics, we're people who take the word of God and we're saying every day, Father, you're the Lord. I serve you. How can I conform my mind to your word? Help me to walk in love. Help me to be tactful. But God, deliver me every day with this word from this present evil world. That's the believers. The believers walk. So in verse five, he he says, to whom be glory forever." And ever. Now, here we have in verse six something that's interesting. He says, I am astonished that you good folks are so soon removed from the one that called you into the grace of Christ. So if the Lord is calling someone out of sin into the gospel, into the kingdom, then there has to be other voices that are simultaneously calling to try to pull you out see? see, as as sure as God is saying, surrender your heart to me. Receive me as your savior. Walk with me and allow me to order your steps. There will always be these other voices. Some of them will be faint. Some of them will be strong and loud and bold. And they'll be saying to you, you really need to leave that whole Christianity thing along because uh, Jesus did not die on the cross for anybody's sin. And that whole thing is bunk and, and you need to walk away from that. And this is why Paul is astonished. He said, I cannot believe all that we've gone through, the persecution we've endured, the, the genuine salvations we've seen, the miracles that you observe, that just like that, you turn and walk away from your faith in Christ. Then he says you turn to another gospel. It's not that Paul believes that there is another form of the gospel. He knows there's only one gospel. However, he also knows that there are forms of good news that resemble the truth. And he said, that's what you folks are succumbing to. Well, there are two things we'll work on here and we'll call it a day. Verse six here, the the grace of Christ, we've already somewhat Talked about, so let's work on that calling that that called you. The, the general call of God is for every sinner to repent. That's the general call of God. That's extended to anybody that takes the time to read the Bible, that anybody that hears the gospel message, that that general call says, repent. Once a person repent and enters into the kingdom of God and according to Scripture, they're born again and they've received a new set of faculties so that they now can see the kingdom of God, as the Lord told Nicodemus. Once you get in the kingdom of God, then all of these individual callings start operating. So now a person feels called to ministry. See, got to respond to the big call first before the smaller calls enter in. Now a person feels called to work in a children's ministry. A person feels called to do this or do that. And normally with God, once you respond to the first calling, it makes it easier for you to respond to the second calling. And within the second calling, then you'll find these other things. And the person who who, who usually re- becomes a Christian and starts out witnessing the people shaking hands with folks across the back fence and, and, and sharing their faith with people on the job. The, those are the people that usually end up making their way to the mission field overseas because they hear all of these different callings. And it, this is what happens when when you have somebody who says something like, well, I had a brother who was sick and, and something uh, really bad happened to him. And I just felt like I needed to become a medical doctor. See, they were already Christian, but but now being a medical doctor for them is a calling. So you have the general call, then you have these more specific calls. And and Paul says, I can't believe that you've walked away from the one who's been doing all the calling. That's what he says. Then the last part, another gospel. There's no end to this. We have, I have no idea how many denominations in America, and I have no idea how many denominations there are in this world, but I can promise you, every preacher in the pulpit, we all believe we're preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel. But I've told you there are some essentials that you can listen for no matter where you go on planet Earth. If somebody is talking about God and, and you will know, if you're in contact with the gospel, the first thing I told you, somebody's got to believe in that virgin birth at virgin birth. Secondly, they have to believe that Jesus lived in this world without sin. I don't mean most of his life without sin. I mean all of it. He's got to be an unblemished, spotless lamb of God. And then he has to be the one who went up on the cross and then died for our sins, was literally taken off the cross and buried. And then, as the scripture says, came up out of the grave of the resurrection. Then also he ascended. I'm not not talking about in a dream. I mean, he literally ascended to the right hand of the father from whence he's going to judge all of the people on planet Earth one day when he comes back for his bride and everything. So so those are the essentials. Whenever I hear somebody in the pulpit and they say something like, well, you know, I'm not sure that there really is a heaven or a hell. You know, the disciples may have just been, you know, just kind of speaking just to try to spur debate and encourage people. If you don't believe there's a heaven, you don't believe Jesus ascended there. You understand? Yeah. You don't believe he ascended there. And when a preacher says that, I get nervous because I'm wondering why, well, why, why, why are people listening to that? And if we if we have Sunday school teachers that, that say something like, well, look, well, everybody sinned at least once. Well, then there's no redemption. How could he be the spotless lamb of God that died on the cross in your place and in my place? So very often the, the gospel that we hear from people who don't believe these things, even though they call it the gospel, it's another gospel. Yeah, another gospel. And there are far more people preaching another gospel than we realize. Yeah, than we realize. Usually the ones on television have some idea about what the, the truth is. The ones on radio sometimes. But when you sit down with a minister and you start asking that minister, what do you personally believe about this text or this verse? I think you'd be shocked at what people say. When you ask some of your friends that, 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 that are Christian who who may have been in church all of their life, what do they think about this? You, you'd probably be surprised when they say something like, well, you, you know... There's no way anybody could be born without without a man and a woman getting together. You can't have a virgin birth. A lot of people believe that another gospel. But when I talk to Muslim, they say to me, Jesus didn't really die on the cross because the Koran teaches someone died in his place. Then I know that's not what I believe here. And when I lived in the Middle East and people would often try to say, well, we serve the same God. It's just that we have different different ways of understanding him. I said, no. First John says he that denieth the son does not have the father. Islam denies that Jesus is God's son. It's another religion, another gospel. When when I'm talking to a Mormon, no matter how nice and sincere, uh, they may be when when they say to me that that the reason we have people and babies born on this planet is because Jesus is 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 up there in the heavens going to different uh, different planets and he's sleeping with different women and that's causing babies to be born into this world i say that's another gospel can't believe it when 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 the mormons say that the reason people are born into this world with black skin is because you had a, a war in the heavens long ago and and satan and and Jesus, and then we're fighting, and everybody that was on Jesus' side ended up with white skin, but everybody was on Satan's side is born into this world with black skin. Then I have to say it's another gospel. Even when I meet people that are likable, see, I'm pleasant, I'm nice, I have coffee, I laugh, drink, and joke, and have a good time with them. But when it comes to this issue here, I'm not negotiating. Hmm. So so hold to the truth. Because this is what matters. Yeah. And we'll get into more detail with this in uh, the weeks to come. Praise the Lord. We'll have word of prayer. If we got any questions, we'll talk. Praise the Lord. Father, we're grateful that as we looked into the scripture tonight, you had so much to say to each of us. We realize that we're just coming up one side of the hill And we only have a glimpse of the things that are perceivable to us. But we are grateful that the power of the Holy Ghost helps us to be able to bring the truth and make it live inside of us, Lord. So we ask you to continue this good work that you've begun in all of our hearts. These things we pray for in Jesus' matchless name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.